Well, we're thinking about being what it means to be an ambassador and to be an ambassador with humility. Um, if one of my favorite verses in the whole of the Bible has to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. I like how the Passion Translation puts that. It says, if anyone is enfolded into Christ. Just that very word, enfolded, is quite nice. I like it. It's like the it's like what you do with your egg and your self-raising flour. You fold it into the butter and the sugar to make your Victoria sponge, don't you? And just in the same way, we're enfolded into Christ and we become something greater than what we began with, together with all these other ingredients, of course. Now, Paul goes on to write that those who are in Christ are chosen and are called as ambassadors, called to be ambassadors. We are ambassadors of the anointed one who carry the message of Christ to the world. That's what we are. That's what you are, an ambassador of the Holy One who carries the message of Christ into the world. Here's what the commentary to the Passion Translation says about being an ambassador. To be ambassadors, ambassadors for Christ means that we are his diplomatic agents of the highest rank sent to represent King Jesus and authorized to speak on his behalf. We are the voice of heaven to the earth invested with royal power through the name of Jesus and the authority of Christ's blood. Well, that sounds like a very high calling, doesn't it? Very high calling, probably the highest calling possible. But it needs to be taken with a good dose of humility because power and authority are too easily abused. We just need to look around the world and we see that. Maybe we, are, we ourselves have misused power or authority in the past. It needs wisdom in its use and it needs to be wielded by those who have learned to be humble. In the time of Jesus, the Pharisees and the tax collectors, the teachers of the law, sorry, and were slow to learn the truth. Pharisees and the teachers of the law were slow to learn the truth. They were too often immature in their understanding of God and in how God worked. And they often even worked to exclude people rather than to reach out with compassion. They couldn't figure why Jesus welcomed and ate with sinners. They had forgotten the ways of God, the God who had taught their ancestors from the beginning, humility through the humiliation of slavery in a foreign land. You can't read far into the Old Testament before you come across a verse that says, remember, you guys used to be slaves in Egypt. They were to remember that in order to realize how great God's salvation is, but also to recognize that to keep them humble. So Jesus tells the teachers of the law and the Pharisees this parable, really tells it to the whole crowd, but, but perhaps the teachers of the law and the Pharisees were the ones that would have, would have had greatest impact on them. The lost son 
learns humility through the experience of exile, albeit self-imposed exile. It was his own choice to go to a distant country and to squander his wealth on wild living outside the protection of the law and end up working as a slave in amongst the pigs, which is another way of saying, another metaphor for his sorry state. Look how low he had fallen. He was even in amongst unclean outsiders. Well, I think we learn here that when people go through difficulty, it might be that their lives are about to be reordered. People grow spiritually in times of conflict or distress or want or need or when faced with circumstances that disrupt the norm. We need to know that that's often when we grow most is when things are tough. Now, I'm not saying that you need to go and look for conflict or distress or poverty in order to grow. That's not what I'm saying. You don't need to worry about that. But it seems that in life, sooner or later, conflict or disturbance will soon come looking for us. We don't need to go looking for it. And when it does, we need to know that it won't have the last word, but that actually, with God's help, we can grow through the conflict or the disturbance or the difficulty or the poverty. There comes a point in the story when the lost son realizes his lostness. The text says he comes to his senses or he comes to himself would be an accurate translation of the Greek. And he realizes his true identity. He's, he's a child of his father, not a slave of anyone else. He comes to his senses. There's a sense that we are all coming to our senses as Christ is more fully formed in us. We're realizing who our true selves are. We're realizing that we're sons and daughters of God. And the lost son is ready at this point, this low point in his life, he's ready to own his own failings. He's not blaming anyone else. He's not pointing the finger at others. He's recognizing his own part in his downfall. And that's really important. It's important to own up, to own our part when things have gone wrong. Now, there might be situations, of course, where it's entirely not our fault. And I'm not saying that everything that happens, every difficulty that we experience, somehow is our fault. That's not what I'm saying. But there will be times when we've made choices that perhaps were not the choice that God would have had us make, like the lost son, that we need to realize that we made a bad choice. And so he's ready at this point. He's come to his senses and he says to himself, he prepares what he's going to say to his father. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of the hired servants. In other words, he's, he's realized or he's learned to be able to take the last place. He's not putting himself above others. He's willing to accept the lowly place. So he's come to his senses, and that's really important in the, in the process of growth and 
change, that that happens. But then he also resolves in his heart to do something about it. And I think that's equally as important. The text tells us he got up and he went to his father. So although his heart was changing in coming to his senses, he realized he had to do something about it. He had to go back to his father. Now, we might sometimes get stuck in a place or a situation which we don't like, but we never actually resolve to do anything about it to make it any better. And maybe there's something that we need today, maybe there's something that we're thinking about that we need to resolve in our mind to do something about that, to change the circumstance. Something that maybe our heart is telling us that we need to move upon. It might be a simple, well, I'm not going to think like that anymore. I'm not, instead I'm going to believe who I truly am. I'm a son or daughter of God the Father. And that means everything he has is mine. It might be a simple change in the way that we think, our mindset, our worldview in that way. Well, whatever it is, or whatever it was, when we take it to God the Father, we'll find that we're met with God's loving embrace. The God who knows our thoughts from afar, who knew all about his son when his he ran to meet his son when the son came running back. He ran to meet him. He knew, he knows our thoughts from afar. Even when we've put ourselves far away, the same God has forgiven us and runs towards us with arms of compassion, overjoyed at the prospect of reconciliation with us, being one with us. We might, like the lost son, approach God with feelings of unworthiness at times, but we discover that when we own any fault that we've had on our part, that we're met with his unconditional love. But what, what can we make of the elder brother in this story? Well, according to the father, he was always in the father's presence. And everything the father had belonged to the elder brother. That's a good place to be. That's a place of abundance, a place of grace, a place of unconditional love. It's a place God intends us all to be in. But what was the elder brother's problem then? Why was he not living in that place of grace, abundance, freedom, and infinite love? What was it that stopped the flow from happening? Was it his jealousy, seeing his brother made a fuss of, being given the robe and the ring and the fattened calf, symbols of status, which as the elder son, he would have coveted for himself. So was it jealousy? Was it his offended idea of justice? His younger brother deserved to be punished, not treated with grace, undeserved favor. Was it his poverty spirit, which complained at the unnecessary expense and the cost of the father's celebration? Well, I think all three of these reasons would certainly be reasons to block the flow of grace in the elder brother's life and make him blind to the celebration. 
I think Jesus teaches the parable to tell us that the younger son is like the tax collectors and sinners whom Jesus treats with undeserved favor. And the elder son is like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who were jealous, whose ideas of justice were offended, and whose poverty spirits complained at unnecessary expense, and who assumed that the world existed on a spirit of scarcity, not a kingdom of gracious abundance. Jesus teaches the parable to correct these things and to bring the truth. And we're left to wonder what would happen to the elder brother. We like to think he would have changed. Well, Jesus leaves the parable with both sons together in their father's care at the end. And maybe that's the way it's to be. Just like the parable of the wheat and the weeds, both are left to grow until the time of the harvest. I think that God's hope is that the weeds will die back and that only the wheat will be left in the end. A gracious transformation will have taken place. Elder brothers with hard hearts will be changed. Poverty spirits will die. Jealousy will cease. Spirits of offense will be no more. I think that's the work of Christ in our lives. As Christ is being formed in us, these things are happening. He deals with our jealous spirits. He deals with our poverty spirits. He deals with our offended sense of justice. And he replaces it with grace. So as we finish, remember that you are an ambassador of the anointed one. You carry the message of Christ into the world. What message are you giving when it comes to being faced with spirits of poverty, jealousy, and offended senses of justice? As the anointed one, the Christ, is what it means, Jesus came to this earth and discovered what it was like to live in a faraway land and to long for things to be different, for the Father's kingdom to come near. Most of us, too, I imagine, have lived, we've known what it's like to be in a faraway land. We've not always been close to God. We've been amongst the pigs at times. And we've longed for things to be different. But now, we are a new creation. We've begun the journey of coming to our senses. We're not there yet, but we've at least begun the journey. We're resolving to do something about it, to seek our Father's kingdom, to see heaven come on earth. And we share the same commission that Jesus had, making disciples and proclaiming the kingdom of heaven in the face of a world which at times feels very distant from that. So let's not lose that vision. Let's keep it here at Kirk Newton and East Calder. Let's pray that even this week we will be worthy ambassadors of Christ as Christ continues to be formed in us more and more fully through the grace of God and the work of God's Spirit. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your unconditional love 
Thank you that you run towards us with open arms. Thank you that you embrace our ugliness and transform it into beauty. We pray that even now, Lord, that process will continue as Christ is more fully formed in each of us. Send us, Lord, as your ambassadors with the humility to recognize that everything exists for your glory and for your goodness and that your light shines in every place. In Jesus' name, amen.